Welcome to the FinTech Newscast. My name is John and with me as always is Steve. How are you doing? I'm well, John. How are you? Good, good. I, I'm ready to jump on the Web3 bandwagon. That's what I'm up to. Oh, it's no. all over the place these days. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. How many NFTs do you have? How many? I have zero NFTs, but I do have a lot of JPEGs. You can make those into NFTs. It's pretty easy. Maybe, maybe I'll try that. Actually, I, I don't have any NFTs, but I do have a friend who's a data scientist who works for a, a mapping company, and he made some sort of graph using, you know, uh, so I, I, I think it was a GIF or something that was uh, stolen by somebody else on Twitter, turned of into course. an NFT, and then sold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a big thing. People just take, or even like a major works of art and stuff, did they get a lot of money? Are the other person? No, I think they got a few hundred bucks at most, like maybe three hundred dollars or so. But, but my still, friend, it's again, just the idea someone stole your work, right? Yeah, and he was like, "Wait a minute, I this is I I, I built this. This makes no sense." And apparently, the, the person on Twitter um, saw the message, replied like "LOL" or whatever, and then never got back to him. I think blocked him or something. Replied to him, "LOL." Oh man, <laughs> you gotta hand it to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If- well, uh, I don't know about that, but I know what to solid business is payments. If you want a good valuation. Be a payments company. Oh, it was payments Stripe a over a hundred, hundred billion, some, some dollars, something like that. I think it's over a hundred. Yeah. We have a, another winner in the valuation uh, race on the payment side. Rapid, you know, this is just in the news because they're a private company around a $15 billion valuation. And we're lucky to have Eric Rosenthal, the head of corporate development and partnerships at Rapid with us this week. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah. You've been uh, very busy these days. I, I, I hope it's uh, not just you. You have a good team over there, but uh, a couple of great acquisitions and a lot of growth at Rapid. Yeah, we've. Um, I would say that many of us are coming out of two years of being holed up in our houses, um, despite the fact that our Israeli office has more or less been open the entirety of COVID. Um, you look back and realize how much we've accomplished in the past two years, and we're it's a, a bit cliche to say we're just getting started, but it is true that uh, we're not done from an acquisitive perspective. We will continue to acquire. Um, we're already working on a variety of different deals as we speak. So we will continue to be busy. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, the lockdown seemed to be like rocket fuel for you guys. I think that a variety of different companies, including our, ourselves, realized that um, of course, it's been discussed. I've discussed it in, in other podcasts and other discussions. COVID was definitively an accelerant for the, the transformation of businesses, uh, or maybe the better said, the migration of businesses into digital. Um, we were extremely fortunate as well during the period of COVID, not only, of course, to have raised an enormous amount of funding, um, but to not actually have really any concentration in many of the businesses that were highly impacted by COVID. So didn't really have a concentration in travel, didn't really have a concentration whatsoever in that particular vertical. Um, And then simultaneously, we were extremely fortunate to have actually built out a significant presence prior to COVID. Of course, a little bit of luck, a little bit of coincidence um, into a variety of different businesses, whether it was Uber, Corner Shop, Rappi, online games, not to be confused with gambling, but online games. A variety of different businesses that experienced enormous growth over the two-year period, two period of lockdowns. Um, and you can probably also say that we were extremely fortunate um, to a certain degree to have had our core engineering and product team in Israel, which uh, in the grand scheme of things actually reacted very well to COVID. 
Um, and as a result, we were able to continue to hire, we were able to continue to build out the team and consequently ship more product. Well, for those people that are, are not familiar with you, it's a rapid R-A-P-Y-D. What is your core competency? What, what are you guys better at than everyone else? So <clears throat> I'm able to answer that question by first telling you a little bit of background about the company of how we got started and consequently what has driven our, driv- our vision for the company. The company was started in 2016. Uh, it was started originally as a multi-currency e-wallet. Conceptually, think of it as if you're in the US, think of it as a multi-currency Venmo. If you're in Europe, think of it as a multi-currency Verse. Um, but ultimately it was designed to be a mobile wallet for consumers, very specifically focused originally on a travel use case. People having currency in pounds and getting on a plane and going to Europe, uh, continental Euro zone, or having a shekel bank account and then getting on a plane and going to Europe on vacation. And that the intent of the application at that point, it was a consumer facing app, it was called Cash Dash, uh, was to facilitate the ability to get money in and out of the system, to do multi-currency conversion, uh, and ultimately, most importantly, not actually have an application that was dependent upon a card that could exist separate from a card, really with this vision that, um, while a bank account makes a ton of sense in many, many use, use cases, prepaid cards make sense in a ton of use cases. In some cases, you just need a wallet. So the company launched originally as a multi-currency e-wallet in 2017. And what we found was while we did get some traction, uh, there was an enormous amount of inbound, unprompted interest from other businesses that came to us and said, would you be willing to white label your product? And at that point, was more or less when I, on a personal level, uh, got connected with the company. I had spent about three years working in another company and, and actually you we were just talking about uh, Web3 and so forth that actually was in the blockchain space. So happy to touch on that topic a little bit as well today. And spent about three years trying to build a consumer app. Building a consumer app is possible when you crack the code, it makes a ton of sense. Um, multiples can be very high, value for consumers can be enormous. Uh, but it's a, this is a bit of you know a grind to get product market fit and to scale a business. Um, and what we decided to do as a result, rapid that is, was to pivot away from being B2C and instead empower other companies that had a necessity or need to uh, connect to financial infrastructure. Why did we decide to do that? Because when we went to go build our consumer-facing app in 2016, we spent multiple millions of dollars. We spent 18 months getting a license, building a ledger, connecting to KYC provider, connecting to a transaction monitoring provider, and all these other things that consequently, somewhat early in call it the industry, um, led us to, to, this, to this idea of creating a financial services infrastructure play. Um, we coined the term, we like to believe of AWS a FinTech, FinTech as a service, but ultimately what we've gone out and done is we've gone to, out and woven together otherwise disparate fragmented financial infrastructure. Uh, we've now unified it under a single API. We've created an abstraction layer. We have created unified reconciliation and settlement. We've created a run contracting uh, construct that allows clients to consume dozens, if not hundreds of different payment methods to connect to multiple geographies, to can manage multiple currencies and do all of these things through one company rather than going and piecemealing together multiple connections. Fast forward to 2022, 
um, the ambition of the company went from being a fintech as a service provider doing mainly alternative payment methods to now one that really has an aspiration of being the de facto global fintech, fintech infrastructure necessary if you're a company operating in multiple geographies, if you're a company that's operating in one geography but using multiple payment method types, um, if you're trying to build complex solutions, marketplaces, semi-closed loop ecosystems, whatever it might be. Um, so when you think about valuation, just to touch on that topic, one of the main reasons that Rapid continues to be valued as the way it's valued is that in the grand scheme of things, we don't see ourselves as a payments company and ultimately the market has not really seen us as a payments company either. They see us as a financial infrastructure provider. On that note, Eric, um, I understand that um, part of your role is to essentially look for M&A opportunities um, in Latin America and in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. And I know that you've also spent time in the region working in Mexico, I think El Salvador and Peru. Um, what do you see as the challenges for the fintech ecosystem in Latin America and how can Rapid sort of help address those as well? Yeah, so my, my mandate from an M&A perspective is global, although the focus that we have as it relates to how, what we're looking at, you know, ultimately we have a, we have a global aperture, um, but we need to have some focus to keep the team focused on looking for what we're trying to acquire. Um, and ultimately our focus in the near term right now is on the United States and Latin America. Um, now, with that said, I'll just add one caveat to that before answering your question specifically is in light of the, what's happening in the market right now, there is likely to be significant opportunistic opportunities that are popping up. Ultimately, what that means is there's going to be companies that went out to raise their Series A and they can't. The companies that go out to raise their Series B and they can't. Um, and they may not actually have been companies that would have been on our quote unquote shopping list. Um, but we probably will take a, a look at them during the next 12 to 18 months when we expect significant amount of companies for better or for worse um, that might have some difficulties to raise additional funding. And we are in a very fortunate position to be extremely well capitalized. To answer your question, you know, the difficulties with Latin America are multiple. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, Latin America on one hand is somewhat similar to the United States in the sense that it is multiple countries where in the United States is one country, but multiple states. Um, so on that level, at least from a regulatory perspective, the landscape is quite similar um, that every country has different regulation. Some transactions are considered money transmission in one country where another country that might not be considered money transmission and one country holding funds for business is not considered deposit taking where another country might be. So when you're thinking about scaling across the region, it's quite difficult to do so um, at the bare minimum, just because of regulation. When you add on top of that, um, that despite common language, despite common culture on many levels, of course, there's, I, I spent a lot of time living there. I speak Spanish at home. So I, I would like to believe I have an understanding of, of the region that despite many of the commonalities, there's also significant differences of how ultimately this financial infrastructure has been built out over the past 10 to 15 years. So the models that led to the creation of this infrastructure are very similar. So airtime providers went from being airtime providers to being our top-up networks to become bill payment networks to ultimately now becoming cash payment networks. That evolution of that business model is fairly common across all of Latin America, but there's 
18 different companies that we work with in order to facilitate the solution to our end merchants or end clients that come to us and say, hey, I want to collect cash across 14 different countries. Behind the scenes, we're connecting to 18 different country, um, companies in order to facilitate that. Um, so the second is massive diversity, despite the commonality when it comes to financial uh, infrastructure. I think the other complexity about the region, um, which in some cases we confront as well, but I think more than anything, our own clients confront and we try to remove that is when you're making decisions about investing in infrastructure in Latin America, um, you do the classical, what is the size of the opportunity equation? Mm-hmm. Does it really make sense for me to go connect to, to go to Costa Rica? Well, you know, it doesn't make sense to go to Costa Rica. Um, I have a very good person on my team that's from Costa Rica. So when she listens to this, hopefully she's not offended by that, but it's a small country. Um, so the classical way that companies go and build, get built out of Latin America is they go to Mexico and they try to jump to Brazil or they go to, they start in Brazil and they try to jump to Mexico. Now, if you start simplifying what is ultimately the cost of doing business or the cost of market entry by serving a client in Brazil. And when that client in Brazil says, hey, I want to go across the region, you say, look, you can keep your contract, you can keep your integration. All you need to do is call these additional APIs in order to facilitate expanding your usage of the rapid product across these other 10 companies or countries. It radically changes the speed by which companies can scale across the region. Um, so today is still relatively difficult to scale. And I think consequently, many companies do do that equation of, oh, is it really worth going to this small country? I foresee that fast forward two to three years when other aspects of what it takes to do market entry are built into infrastructure providers like Rapid, that you'll see more and more companies that get started in Peru and jump across the whole region, start in Chile and jump across the whole region. Whereas up until now, classically has been you start in Mexico and then go to Brazil or you start in Brazil and go to Mexico. Oh, that's too bad. We're, we're from uh, our background from smaller countries. Uh, so I guess we, yeah. we have to wait a little bit for that, for that development. But um, what, what countries are you guys from out of curiosity? Uh, my, my background is uh, Ecuador. Okay. And mine, mine is a DR. Okay, so we are present in DR and we are present in, in Ecuador. Um, we actually are present in both countries. Uh, and I'll say that the clients that are, that are using us in those countries are the ones that you would expect. You know, the, the Rappies, the, the Ubers, the corner shops of the world that, you know, their entire mantra in DNA has always been expand quickly and globally. Um, Whereas I think that generally speaking, you've probably have seen this now that um, the next generation or the fact, the number of companies that are coming out of Colombia is unbelievable at this point. I think they, they'll probably talk about that. It's probably hundred companies and in one shape or form are now associated with Rappi alumni. Um, you know, they start in Colombia and then they very quickly then need to jump to a larger country and they generally don't jump to Ecuador and they generally don't jump to Dominican Republic. They go <laughs> yeah. to Mexico. Uh, because they can, they speak the language. Um, they then try to raise money, and then from there they start to expand. Is there something going on in Colombia that's driving that? You know, I'm, 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 I'm married to a Peruvian. I know a lot about the Peruvian, call it society. Um, I've spent some time in Colombia. I, I, I help uh, a venture fund that has a 
has a presence in Colombia, but I'm not an expert. So I'll say what I observe is first and foremost, there's an enormous alumni network of RAPI operators. Um, RAPI has now been around for more than, more than I think seven or eight years at this point. Um, there's constantly a lot of people that have gone through the process of scaling a business, have gotten fully vested, have probably been able to take some money off the table in some shape or form. Um, there's consequently a subset of probably 30 to 40 executives that are currently there or formerly there that have become prolific angels in supporting these early stage companies. And then yes, I think in general, Colombia has a strong educational infrastructure. Uh, there's a handful of universities that are world-class. Now, with that said, there's also tons of people that I've come across that are Colombian entrepreneurs that are not necessarily coming from these name brand universities. Um, and I think there's the last thing is that despite some political uncertainty um, and instability that exists in general in the region and also in Colombia, that there's now something that's sort of been happening within society in general, which is, is sort of remove the stigma of drawing and trying to be an entrepreneur. I think a great deal of what has happened in the past in Latin America was most people, you know, a lot of people were entrepreneurs. They were starting, you know, businesses selling agricultural goods. They were selling businesses doing whatever it might be. But this notion of like self-identifying as an entrepreneur and call it the Silicon Valley way, I think that's something fairly recent. So I don't think that the stigma has necessarily been removed. I think that what's been removed is Yes, you go to university. Yes, you come to the United States for your education. You go get your MBA. And now it's a legitimate thing to come back and say, I'm starting a company. Yeah, hopefully that trend uh, continues as far as the entrepreneurship and uh, the support for that. Uh, so yeah. we saw that you're doing acquisitions uh, all over the world. Uh, we saw the uh, uh, in Iceland and Hong Kong. Are there any interesting uh, stories about the, uh, and, and you guys are, are based out of Israel, uh, are there any interesting stories about dealing with different uh, cultures or interesting um, uh, requirements uh, that you have in, in different regions? Just some uh, anonymous uh, anecdotes, if you have any. Yeah, I, I assume that the cultural differences between uh, Peru, Iceland and, and Hong Kong are rather vast. Um, <laughs> yes. So just, I'm um, assuming that that's, that's a, little bit. a few issues. Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Rapid is, is the way I describe our story is I was not part of the founding team. I was the eighth employee. I joined the company very early um, and I joined the company about a year and maybe five months into its, its founding. Um, and when I got connected with Arik, uh, the company was already operating in the UK, which is some, which on one hand is kind of crazy, but on the other hand, you say there is no market, particularly since we started as a consumer facing company in Israel. And I think consequently that gave us a advantage when it came to scaling. I think that many, many companies, particularly from Europe and particularly from the US, not to generalize, but I am gonna generalize, have significant challenges when it comes to scaling beyond those two geos. One, because the total addressable market inside of their own geo is generally large enough for them to build a very large business before they need to look to go elsewhere. Um, and consequently, when it does become time to go elsewhere, they're dealing with this dynamic of, oh, should I go to you know expand my presence into Florida or 
you know, to a new vertical, or should I get on a plane and go localize and go try to find talent? Israeli companies don't have, quote unquote, that luxury. They have to go global effectively from day one because there is no market for you to build a global company in Israel. The, the um, population of Israel is uh, like under 10 million? Yeah, yes. So you, the company has to go global effectively from day one. So it's from a cultural perspective, it does mean that you're effectively managing a multicultural, multi-geographic team really from the beginning. Now, rapid and full transparency in the last, we do have a constant discussion internally. You know, are we Israeli company? What is our culture? Um, and at the end of the day, what defines the culture is is ultimately the leadership and of course the, the top leadership and Arik is Israeli, um, and there's many things about our culture that at face value can be particularly challenging um, for non-Israelis um, because we could stereotype and generalize and say, you know, sometimes they're very direct and sometimes they like to argue. And, um, sometimes they um, are very, call it, aggressive in, their, in how they approach things. But then another way to sort of flip, put a flip side of that is, Here's a here's a CEO and founder um, that when I met him in October of 2007, well, I met him in July of, or June of 2017. When I met him in, in October, of, when I spoke with him in, again, we were speaking with him in October of 2017, he comes out of a meeting with a major, major prospect and says, they're asking this, you know, early stage as a company, they're asking how much we're going to charge for the services. And I say to him, you mean MDR? And he says to me, what's MDR? You know, here's a guy that in 2017 didn't know what merchant discount rate was. So there's a there's something to be said for the audacity, the ambition, the boldness, the belief that I don't need to understand this industry in order to disrupt it. Um, it's actually better that if I don't understand it, I can disrupt it. There's a, there's something to be said of I'm going to brute force my way into something um, and just say I'm just going to put my head down and keep on going. So there's something that's admirable and beneficial when it comes to defining what is the, the culture of the company. But in other contexts, of course, it leads to some level of, at times, tension uh, with other people that are perhaps coming from cultures that are a bit more passive or much more passive aggressive or a bit more indirect. I like to believe that that diversity and, and, and that clash of cultures um, is actually what leads to better outcomes. But ultimately, uh, there are definitely, as you say, sort of anecdotes of, wow, this is a radically different culture from my own. Um, but I think that there's certain things about the culture that I would like to believe continues to sustain. Um, another example, just to give you a sense of when I first joined Rapid, when I used to interview folks in the early, early days, including our chief marketing officer, if you ever get him on a podcast, he'll say, you know, here, Eric reaches out to me, um, trying to recruit me to become their chief marketing officer. I'm working at a well-funded, profitable uh, fintech, managing a, man a massive team. And this guy, Eric, myself, reaches out to, to me and says, let's meet for coffee. And Eric shows up wearing flip-flops and shorts and meets at a coffee shop. And he says, who the heck you, is this guy? You should see what I'm wearing right now. Actually, <laughs> I'm normally I'm, I'm based in Miami and generally speaking, I'm wearing flip flops and shorts because otherwise it's incredibly too hot. Um, 
And he says to me, uh, or, you know, after he finally joins, he says, you know, I thought you were freaking crazy. Um, you know, you have this bold <laughs> vision of trying to do what you're planning on doing that you're going to be able to sell to these companies and you're going to develop a product. And here you are, you don't even have an office. You're barely wearing, you know, anything that looks professional. Um, so I think there's also a dynamic within that purposeful cultural clash um, to try to really get to the essence of the problem and the essence of people. We're really, and I don't know if you're going to need to edit me, we're kind of a no bullshit type of culture. Um, we don't, we don't like a lot of ceremony. We don't like a lot of, um, that. And for many people, particularly that grow up in, whether it's a culture from a country perspective or culture from a company experience perspective, that can, can be a clash, uh, but it's also somewhat refreshing. Um, and who would have also thought that after, you know, starting the company and joining the company in two years that suddenly we would all be working from home and some people would be in shorts all day. They'd be working from the garages. They'd be running around without video because their kids were screaming in the background. And lo and behold, we're still producing. Um, it's like the so world think, caught up to you guys. Yeah, it's like the world caught up to us. Now, with that said, we're also, <laughs> Israeli office never closed um, during COVID. And we have a beautiful office with basketball court and climbing wall and et cetera. So there's also, there is an ongoing clash in culture internally that many of our folks overseas are still working somewhat remotely. Um, whereas the Israeli culture is very much driven by face-to-face -face interaction and people generally want to go into the office. Yeah, that's uh, interesting you mentioned that. It, it kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of like the opposite of that would be like a Japanese, very indirect, uh, you, you generally... Um, don't say much about exactly what you feel, but uh, but uh, yeah, you guys are making it work. So it's uh, it's pretty uh, obviously very successful. You know, we uh, we've been, had a great time uh, interviewing uh, uh, guests based out of uh, Israel. We had a uh, Sorel Tall, the VP of EMEA at Rapid, on about uh, two years ago, and uh, yeah, yeah, that directness that. Um, you know, forthright, I'll say it, and you know, ends up being a, a fun interview. And and we've had other people based out of Israel, um, and they've been some of our favorite guests, actually. It's it's Israeli nonsense that, that we all appreciate. It's really no nonsense. I mean, no nonsense. nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> where the where the nonsense? They bring where the nonsense ones. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. the nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, speaking of of no nonsense, uh, uh, Eric, um, I understand that you have some strong views about the way in which the payments industry is being consolidated. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How is it being consolidated and how would that, would that uh, either help or hurt consumers? What you're going to see, this consolidation is ultimately likely to lead to an ease of building other types of software and other types of solutions on top of, of, of companies such as Rapid. Um, and I think consequently what you're going to see from a consumer, if you define a consumer as either an end user, such as the three of us or a business, is I think that you're going to see better and more verticalized software solutions um, for business workflows, functions, um, and ultimately that payments, whether I hate to use the word just because it's become also a little bit cliche, similar to Web3, embedded inside of this. And this is going to continue to be the case. Now, ISVs have been around for a long time, um, but 
I think you're just going to see an explosion over the next couple of years of more and more verticalized solutions. So um, with the consolidation of payments, theoretically, it should mean that um, it will be easier for those software companies to ultimately incorporate payments and financial services into their solutions, just because they won't have to piece together four different vendors, five different vendors, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should lead to a better consumer experience as it pertains just to consumer experience. I think that also what perhaps you're implying in the question is generally speaking up until the past couple of years, particularly in the context of the United States, and you both just mentioned you're coming from Dominican Republic and Ecuador, in the places that you come from and the places that I've lived overseas for, for years, cards was one of many forms of payments, which constantly meant that the monetization opportunities um, for those facilitating those services were, were diverse. It was not just credit card processing. It was not just debit card processing. It was cash payments, bank transfer payments. Um, and I think now there's a significantly better understanding within the industry that um, card transactions are going to trend towards zero as it relates to the cost. Um, there's significant competitive pressure, not necessarily from a company, but from well, this, the industry itself of proliferation of real-time payment networks, proliferation of, of sovereign clearing systems, proliferation of, of payment ecosystems that are semi-closed, where companies themselves are trying to replicate in some shape or form the Starbucks type of scenario where they themselves are just powering their own payments, lowering the cost of getting money into the system. Just to give you an example, I mean, the, the ingenious of the PayPal model is you fund your PayPal wallet for using ACH to cost them one to two cents, if not less. Um, and then they turn around and charge a merchant upwards of three to 5%. This ingenious business model. It, now, when it comes to the fact that you're going to see more and more ease of integrating other payment methods, I think that as a result, merchants or clients will get smarter on how they're thinking about the use of different payment methods. And that should ultimately translate into um, better experiences. Uh, now, there's views of, of um, you know, what is better. There's an experience dynamic and there's a cost, a cost dynamic. Um, I think that both will actually improve. You, you mentioned the supremacy of cards in the U.S. So do you foresee sort of a bifurcated uh, world in which we have the U.S. sort of card-centric world and then the rest of the world looking at other forms of payments? I know that, you know, maybe five years ago or so, um, there was this notion in the U.S. that we would enable things like QR payments, like they, they, they do in China, and you know, e-wallets, and more interesting low-cost ways for both consumers and for for merchants. But I still think that um, the the percentage of card payments in the U.S. has either remained steady or declined. I'd say um, less than it has in other parts of the world. So, how do you see that 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 transition to other forms of payments, both in the U.S. and Globally, I would answer that question is depending upon which market you're talking about. Are you talking about B2B payments or are you talking about consumer payments? I think that within the world of of consumer payments, you're unlikely to see a significant impact on the use of cards. I think that what is more likely is 
that the overall, you know, that there's going to be some growth of ACH within consumer payments. There's going to be some growth of, of potentially other type of payment networks within, within consumer payments, as far as more and more companies trying to replicate in some shape or form the Starbucks type of model where they have funds in the system and they're able to, to ultimately do quote unquote honest transactions. Um, I think that within business payments, um, you will see actually a growth of card payments. Um, but more importantly, I think that you're going to see a significant impact as crazy as it might seem that the U S is still very uh, check centric. Um, really? and I think that, Oh, from a business payments perspective, then we're talking trillions of dollars are still sent out using checks. Steve, Steve hates paper, anything. By the way, I, I so he's shocked. I don't keep any paper. Yeah, I, I, well, no, I, I have I'm, to. I'm I just consumer. made, I just made six paper checks out uh, yesterday. Uh, a lot of landlords and surprisingly, some big companies. Uh, it's a huge pain to get set up on their system. They don't have. They're not connected to a, a fintech or anything, and it's a hassle to get on their automated payment system. Uh, so it's just easier to to write a check sometimes. But. Uh, yeah, I have not encountered a, like a, a lot of uh, smaller commercial landlords that take any, that, you know, they prefer checks. Uh, so if that's an area you guys can fix, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. There's a notion of habit and then there's a no, notion of preference. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think that depending upon how you ask the question in a survey, the the small business or consumer act a different will answer differently if you ask them. What do you prefer spending time writing a check or or clicking on your mobile? They'd probably say clicking on your mobile, but you say how many payments did you make in the past month and and what percentage of them were done by check and what percentage by by mobile, they'll probably say more was done by check. So there is something to be said when it comes to payments that it's hard to break habits uh, until until ultimately some other type of value proposition is inbuilt into changing that behavior. And I think that ultimately, I spent a lot of time in 2014 when I was working at First Data, right when Apple Pay was coming out, and the entire discourse in the industry now eight years ago was, well, the breakthrough of Uber was that they hid the payments. Which we love. And, yeah. Which yeah. we love, um, but that notion of hiding the payment really has not introduced itself into B2B payments as of yet. Um, yeah, it scale. seems like uh, I've heard like uh, from some SMBs that they, it's like a, like a record keeping thing almost. Um, they like to see that uh, the check's going through and it's just that whole process uh, that, that uh, I guess the um, legacy uh, thinking is, is attached to, that that's how you do it and that's how... You know, the other stuff is more consumer, but this is a physical check. It's a record. And that's how you track things, which is totally not necessary. But uh, it just, uh, I guess, it, it, maybe it seems a little bit scary to, to jump to something, something different. Exactly. So what's next on the uh, docket for Rapid? You guys have some great acquisitions uh, exactly in your, in your space. It looks like you're bidding, building... Um, uh, capability and expanding geography. Um, what, what's uh, what's rapid look like in uh, uh, two or three years? Let's say. Oh, so probably well, two to three. Tell years. me the future. Tell me the future. <laughs> Easy question. Uh, 
Easy question. Yeah, um, and the price of Bitcoin in two years would be helpful too. No, yeah, uh, what, yeah. What, where are you guys heading? What, what's a what's a good scenario for you guys? I think two to three years from now, we're formal player in card processing uh, in the United States. I think that we have a meaningful presence in Brazil. I think that we've expanded our capabilities, or at least our our penetration into B2B payments quite significantly. Um, I think from a product perspective, you'll see more and more platforms being powered by Rapid. Uh, almost 90% of our business today is direct. Um, we don't really have a channel business, so you're thinking you're also going to see a significant amount of, of business coming from channels and, and ecosystem partners and the like. Um, and I think lastly, what you're probably also going to see is a company that from a scale perspective is you know, two to three years now, 1,500 to 2,000 people with, with, if everything goes as planned, with you know, a couple hundred people in Dubai, um, where we're building an engineering product center, and ultimately a company that probably at that point is right in the process of preparing to go public or depending upon when you start the clock on that two to three year period of time is, is now a public company. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that. All right. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and we wish you all the success uh, in the world going forward. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend as well. All right. That's Eric Rosenthal, the head of corporate dev and partnerships at Rapid. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.